I'm curious, is there a way to avoid natural disasters? No. Natural disasters are an absolute inevitable part of the natural processes that make life on Earth possible. What we can do is avoid damaging our cities by how we build them. Hi, I'm Cody Goff with the solidly built curiosity.com. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, we're going to get an inside look at natural disasters and how they've shaped the way we communicate for centuries. Every week, we explore what we don't know because curiosity makes you smarter. This is the Curiosity Podcast. Today isn't just a show about natural disasters. It's a conversation about how scientists communicate with the public. Dr. Lucy Jones is a leading seismologist who spent more than 30 years in federal service with the U.S. Geological Survey, or USGS, and works with the Seismological Laboratory at Caltech. Her new book is called The Big Ones, How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us and What We Can Do About Them. And it's a really interesting deep dive into some of history's biggest natural events, from volcanoes to floods and everything in between. But this episode's not about doom and gloom. It could make you see scientists in a new light and maybe even challenge how you think about your own thinking. But before we get into the interview, I just want to do a quick update on your recovery process. Ashley, our loyal listeners know that you ran the Boston Marathon in the pouring rain, by the way. And we want to know, how are you feeling? Pretty good. Most of my aches and pains are gone. I've gone from eating everything in sight to eating like a normal person. Usually after I run a marathon, I like to tighten up my diet and really focus on getting enough protein. And lately I've been obsessed with this super high protein pasta. It's called Explore Cuisine Edamame Spaghetti. And it's got about as much protein as a chicken breast and half the carbs of regular pasta. Wow. It's amazing, but it's kind of hard to find in my regular grocery store. That's where Thrive Market comes in handy. Today's episode is sponsored by Thrive Market, which is a revolutionary online marketplace that's on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. Basically, you can shop for thousands of the best-selling non-GMO foods and natural products, always at 25 to 50% below traditional retail prices. And Thrive Market is offering Curiosity Podcast listeners an additional 25% off your first order, plus a 30-day free trial when you visit thrivemarket.com slash curiosity. That's where I get the super high-protein pasta I just talked about. But you can get everything else you need on Thrive Market. Snacks, vitamins, supplements, kitchen staples, home goods, organic baby food, kids products, and a lot more. And it's all shipped straight to your door. Plus a brand new fresh meat and seafood offering. What's especially cool, though, is that you can filter the catalog by your values and dietary preferences. So if your diet is paleo, gluten-free, vegan, kosher, ketogenic, you can shop for more than 90 different values. So not only are you getting your food delivered to your door, but you save a lot of time reading labels because Thrive Market does it for you. Every products page on Thrive Market shows you things like why you'll love it, price comparisons to retail, nutritional ingredients, and more. More than 70% of Thrive Market's catalog cannot be found on Amazon. Thrive Market is the largest retailer in the country that sells exclusively non-GMO groceries. And the whole thing is that for the first time ever, you can access wholesome alternatives to conventional products found at traditional supermarkets at the same prices or lower. All packaging, boxes, and inserts are made from recycled paper and are recyclable. Thrive Market is the first company in the country to go zero waste. Thrive Market's prices are already up to 50% off. As if that's not enough to get started, they're also offering Curiosity Podcast listeners an extra 25% off your first order, along with a free 30-day trial when you visit thrivemarket.com slash 
curiosity. If you usually spend 100 bucks at the grocery store, you're going to get the same amount for 50 to 75 bucks on Thrive Market. And now you're going to get an extra 25% off your first order. If you were going to go grocery shopping this week anyway, then why not give Thrive Market a try and shop from your home? Again, you get 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial at thrivemarket.com slash curiosity. No special code is necessary. Just shop around and the discount will apply at checkout. We'll put a link in the show notes, but one more time, that's thrivemarket.com slash curiosity. Now let's talk to Dr. Lucy Jones. What can we do about a natural disaster? We can do nothing about stopping the natural hazard. We don't stop plate tectonics. The earthquake's going to continue to happen. The volcanoes will continue to erupt. Uh, We're making the meteorologic disasters more common with all the extra heat we're putting into the atmosphere. What we can do about them, though, is prevent the human catastrophe. We can build buildings that don't fall down in earthquakes. We can recognize that living on the side of a volcano is not a great idea. There's a lot of ways in which, if we take it into account, we can build human systems that can handle the variability of the system. The problem is, is that the variability is happens on long enough time frames. It's pretty hard to convince us short-lived humans that it's worth planning for something that maybe is hundreds of years out. And, and so usually what our challenge is is, not, is often historically informed. We're living on the, the bank of a river that floods on a regular basis or, or on the side of a volcano. I mean, Naples, Italy, there's probably not a lot it can do to stop, you know, Vesuvius will erupt again at some time and um, what they've got to be able to do is predict it and get out, but they're not going to be able to preserve much of the city because of that. The river that might flood, that's that's a regular occurrence. And I think of the people in New Orleans, one of the chapters is dedicated to Hurricane Katrina, of course. There are spots that seem, uh, on a very short-term cycle, very likely to experience disasters and problems, forest fires in California, you name it. So do you know the psychology or do you understand what draws people to stay there anyway? Well, there's a human tendency to not want to believe the worst is true. There's a very strong tendency. There's an interesting equation to to control the rate at which disasters happen. For every disaster, you have a power law distribution pretty much. The smallest event, which means the small events are really common, the the larger events get less and less common, and the, the very biggest ones are extremely rare. So when we as human beings experience this, what we've experienced in our lifetime seems the definition of what we should be expecting. And, you know, I have found here in in Southern California that the emergency managers or city people who responded to Northridge have a harder time believing what the big San Andreas earthquake is actually going to be like than the ones with no experience. Because they went through Northridge, it was extremely difficult, and they got through and they did a good job. And they're like, hey, see, we know how to do this. Convincing them that wasn't a big earthquake becomes more difficult than dealing with the people who who don't actually have the experience. So it's psychologists tell us there's something called a normalization bias that whatever is what we're experiencing now, that's what we think really matters. And you can see from an evolutionary perspective that that's a pretty good trait. I mean, if you're worried about a hundred year flood and ignoring the wolf that's attacking your children, your DNA is not going to be making it into the evolutionary pool. So there's a strong reasons for why we focus on the immediate. And then there's another sort of part of this part of that psychology is humans don't generally make decisions about probability from probabilities. We make decisions 
from emotional bases. And it's like, we might be able to use statistics to convince you of a certain risk, but deciding to take action requires more of an emotional connection. And emotions come from stories. And if the disaster is far enough back that you don't have stories from your parents or your grandparents, it's really hard to make it real. You write about some that have been known for centuries. Pompeii, the main one, of course, uh, the the volcano eruption in Iceland that that killed millions, which I bring up some of the older disasters that you write about because you also write about the winter 1861-1862, the flood that devastated California, and which you argue was probably the worst natural disaster the state has ever seen. But when you think of California disasters, you think of fires and earthquakes, not not really floods, right? Exactly. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm a fourth generation Southern California. My family came here in 1870s, and I had never heard of this flood. Oh, wow. It was just it, it was just, it was in 1861, 62 before our family arrived, but nobody talks about it here. And it was only when I was leading a project at the USGS to create scenarios of great disasters, and we were looking at what should be the appropriate model for the flood, that the hydrologists started talking about this event. And I was just astonished that something this devastating could have happened. I mean, it's well documented in the New York Times. I found all sorts of uh, articles about it. Um, and most Californians don't know. And it more devastating than the 1906 earthquake. It killed 1% of the population. It bankrupted the state. It destroyed one-third of the taxable land. Wow. Um, and changed the nature of our society. Because up until that point, the main industry in California was ranching. And 200,000 head of cattle were, were drowned in the flood. And the ranching industry fell apart, and they they weren't able to afford to reestablish, and they switched to farming instead of ranching. And to me, it it was exemplifies the sort of psychological perspective we have about disasters. There's a couple of them. One is something we can't see is more frightening than something we can see. I mean, again, that's another deep evolutionary pressure. Um, The one you can't see and that you don't know when it's coming is more dangerous because you don't know how to protect yourself. So we are always more afraid of earthquakes than rain. I mean, who's afraid of the rain? You can see it coming. It's predicted. But the reality is across America, floods kill more people than earthquakes do. And even here in California, there were probably 4,000 people who died in that one event and something like 3,000 in the 1906 earthquake. But but you just aren't afraid of the rain. Water does way more damage than most of us give it credit for. According to the Center for Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters, of all the deaths from natural disasters that happened in the U.S. from 1900 to 2016, flooding is number two on the list. That's right below tropical cyclones, a category that includes hurricanes, and right above convective storms, which are the cause of things like tornadoes and heavy rain and hail. Earthquakes? They're only number five with only a third of the fatalities claimed by floods. They even claim fewer lives than heat waves, which are another bit of weather that we experience all the time but never seem to worry about. And that's since 1900. So these statistics include the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, a 7.9 magnitude tremor that's considered the deadliest in U.S. history. Earthquakes might be scary, but it's the water that'll get you. So it's both that we we need those close-up memory, or we, we have a hard time focusing on it. And we often aren't very rational about assessing our risks. There are a lot of factors, especially unpredictability and unseen, that make a, a disaster more frightening. Yeah, I don't think humans are, are particularly well known for being rational creatures. 
Oh, 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 well, yes, right. You know, we evolved our intelligence to survive against predators with, with stronger muscles and bigger teeth. And the ability to make patterns was how we used our brain to keep ourselves safe. And, and there you need to be right. But the other part of it was we were doing this in a hyper-socialized setting with, you know, within our clans. And you needed to be sure that, you know, you weren't the one who went out and, and fought the predator while the other people stayed safe in the clan. So it's very important to win arguments. The ability to win arguments is probably more important than the ability to be right. And they never ran statistical tests to be sure that the, the patterns are correct. So we have a very strong human psychology that's called uh, a confirmation bias. We, we believe things that we are, we believe in the data that supports what we already believe. And we are much more critical of, of data that contradicts that. And it's, it's sort of, you can say that's why the scientific method exists, why we have peer review, because the easiest person to fool is ourselves. And scientists are just as subject to confirmation bias as anybody else. But having acknowledged that and established peer review in which we, we take our pet project, our, you know, our intellectual offspring, and hand it to a competitor and ask them to trash it. That's what peer review is. And it's how we keep ourselves you know, looking at truth and not just on what we want to believe. It's a hard process. Humans don't like it. But when you look at how we look at disasters over time, we don't usually go through that. We mostly are trying to form the patterns that will be safe. And when it's fundamentally a random distribution, we make up patterns. We attribute it to the gods. We blame the victims. We have a lot of different ways in which we, we try to find a way to make ourselves safe in what is inherently a random process. That is wild to me that we have had, I have interviewed on the Curiosity Podcast, linguists, artificial intelligence experts, people who work in the humanities, neurologists, psychologists, and now you have mentioned confirmation bias. I would not have expected confirmation bias to jump out in geology of all, <laughs> of all places. It's so prevalent and pervasive. It's, it's, it's incredible to me. It's like the scientific thing. Is this, have you noticed in the scientific community that a lot of attention is being paid to it these days? Yes, and it's it's partly. I mean, for for us hard scientists, it's um, it's recognizing we had already gone and you know peer reviews been around for a long time without anybody talking about confirmation bias, but it helps us understand why we're doing it and seeing what the issues are, because it's it is so easy to fool yourself, and you know, and it, I think it's also partly right now. How come climate change isn't believed? I mean, as a scientist, I just go. I don't get it. How can you take what's so clearly true and just reject it because you don't like it? And as we look at that issue, part of it is how the sort of the difference in communication styles between scientists and non-scientists. We so assume that the people who we're talking to are critiquing our science and need to be convinced that we did it right. So when we give a result, we talk about how we set up the experiment and what our methodology was and very carefully go through our uncertainty analysis before we give the answer. When we communicate that way with people who aren't critiquing us, who are just asking us for the answer, by the time we finish talking about all the uncertainties, what they've heard is that we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> and so as we've, it, this is, it's come up to me as we've been, Earth scientists engage in public communication. We've been having to really look at what did we do wrong? How did we get to this place? 
and recognizing the very different approach that scientists and non-scientists take towards talking about uncertainty, uh, to me, is part of the important answer on, on how we've gotten derailed in the climate change discussion. A great illustration of how vitally important uncertainty is to the scientific process is something called p-value. P-value is a number that tells you how likely it is that the result of a scientific experiment didn't happen by random chance, and you have to include that number every time you report a scientific result. For example, let's say you want to see if a drug helped lower blood pressure. You'd get a bunch of volunteers and give them pills. Only half of them get the real drug and half get a sugar pill that looks identical. You record the results of the two groups, then do some fancy statistical analysis and come up with a p-value, which is always somewhere between zero and one. A higher number is bad. That means it has a good chance of being a result from random chance and the drug probably isn't having an effect. Generally, you want your number to be less than 0.05 or 0.01. Different fields set their bar at different levels. When your results meet that bar, they're considered statistically significant. Not proven, not 100% for sure, just statistically significant. There's still a fraction of a chance that your results were a fluke. Of course, normal people don't talk this way. I definitely locked the door to my apartment this morning. My cat is absolutely the cutest cat in the world. And chunky peanut butter is 100% better than creamy. When casual everyday language meets precise scientific jargon, wires can cross and misunderstandings can happen. We've got to meet in the middle. Scientists finding new ways to communicate their science is a great thing, but it also won't hurt for everyday people to learn a bit more about what uncertainty means in science. Listeners to this podcast are taking a big step right now. Hey, Ashley, real quick, I want to mention that the Curiosity Podcast is brought to you by Skillshare. That's right. Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes in business, marketing, entrepreneurship, technology, and more. All of the courses are taught by real experts in the field or public motivational speakers, and they teach so many skills like computer coding, software skills, Google Analytics, social media strategy. You name it, Skillshare has pretty much any skill for any need. Trying to get good with Photoshop? There's a course. Want to monetize your Instagram account? There's a course. Want to build a website or become a social media influencer? Skillshare has you covered. I've been putting in some extra hours launching our new daily podcast, and Skillshare has been a huge help with courses on how to work from home effectively and successfully. I also took a productivity course from the product marketing manager at Trello, which is a workflow tool used in a lot of offices, and that was super helpful. Is that why you're finally replying to my emails? <clears throat> anyway... Curiosity Podcast listeners can learn the latest and greatest tips and tricks on Skillshare, and you can get started today with a very special offer for our very special audience. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. Yeah, Skillshare is offering Curiosity Podcast listeners two months of unlimited access to more than 18,000 classes for just 99 cents total. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash curious. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash curious to start your two months now. One more time, that's Skillshare.com slash curious. Was that part of the reason you wrote this book to help communicate these ideas and try to reach people in a way where people who are sitting around thinking, well, I'm not going to get hit by a huge earthquake, might maybe rethink that? Yeah, I hope so. You know, I mean, I spent 33 years with the USGS here at Caltech. And in that time, I have done thousands of interviews after various earthquakes. And through that process, you know, it's giving me some sort of a experiential information about how people think about disasters. And I knew there were ideas that I wanted to communicate. Part of it is just, 
was to help people see things as a geologist does, where 10,000 years is recent. And our human lifespan is just this little blip on this larger process. Uh, but also to see just how preventable most of the losses were if we were willing to take it. But also then, you know, part of what I came to understand in doing all those interviews was how much people were looking at me, not for scientific information so much as for reassurance. Hmm. And this is, right, so, you know, I said, as scientists, we always start by talking about all our uncertainties. We're like the only people in the world who really like uncertainty. <laughs> to, to the rest of the world, uncertainty is extra scary. And what they were doing in coming to ask a seismologist about the fault when the earthquake happens, I mean, knowing what the fault is or the magnitude or what the research is, is not going to help you rebuild your house. But it, it puts that scary thing back into a box. It says somebody understands it. I give it a name. I give it a number. I give it a fault. And I, I, I make it seem manageable again. And recognizing through hard experience that that's really what was going on. And then when we, as scientists, talked about our uncertainty in the immediate aftermath of an earthquake, we got people a lot more scared. Right? So part of this is to try to explore this idea of how we feel about uncertainty and how we feel about randomness. And it was, it turned out to be this incredibly fun process to write a book. It's so different than writing science papers. I'd have written hundreds of science papers, but a book is a, is a very different experience. And I had to, to find a storytelling voice. Scientists know that stories mislead you and you don't do that. But realizing stories would help people comprehend this stuff helped me try to, to move beyond it. And as I researched the stories and told them, I came to a new understanding about how many different ways we try to explain away randomness. I mean, even the word disaster itself comes from the Latin disaster, ill-starred. It comes from the belief that your fate is written in the stars and you got the bad ones when you were hit by a disaster. So from the sort of beginning of Western culture, we have tried to find out, make a pattern in what was random. The same thing goes on in Asia, too. They have less of a personal relationship with a god and more of an emphasis on social harmony. So there you see earthquakes being attributed to a yin-yang imbalance, where the, the yin earth overpowers the yang sky. When there's too much yin in the system, you get earthquakes. If there's too much yang in the system, you get hurricanes because the sky's out of control. But that it's the same idea. How do we explain away this randomness that is so terrifying? And when there isn't a local physical thing you can use, you put it on, on the things that can't be contradicted. Well, in the ancient Greek oracles would attribute it to the Greek gods, of course. But what they were doing was accomplishing the same thing that you're talking about. You said that presenting this science and making people feel better just by communicating that, hey, there are people that understand this. Uh, sure, your your research is backed by science, and, and there are measurable ways to actually prove that you do understand it. But they were kind of trying to do the same thing back then, even just saying, oh, it's the gods, that, that would placate everybody. Right. I am accomplishing the same things that, you know, shamans were doing. How to make the unknown scary seem manageable. And 
when I sort of when I came to that awareness, it it gave me a different understanding of what I was doing when I gave interviews after earthquakes. So now, uh, one of the other things that happens because of that is, uh, you know, as scientists, we're much more interested in what we don't know. Right? Once it's settled, we sort of stop caring. It's not a subject of research anymore. So when the reporters would come out and faced with a bunch of geeks and how do we get these guys talking, the usual question is, what did you learn in the earthquake? They know that that gets a scientist to be really excited and give them something they can use. But the scientists in general are pretty literal minded. And when somebody asks you what you learned, you answer that question. So we would talk about what we didn't know about the earthquakes before this one happened and what was different in this one. What that meant, though, was that every time people were listening to us, we were telling them what we didn't know. And we never said, um, actually, there's really nothing much to learn in this earthquake, is it? Just did all the damage that we already had told you was going to happen. That was not a message that often got given. And I started trying to do that. When they asked, what did you learn? I would say, you know, most of this is really pretty standard. This building down, we changed the building code for that back in 1980. <laughs> um, and, and it was interesting to, to shift that way. It was actually re more reassuring. Yeah, we understood this. We just haven't chosen to act on it. And it also, it's, I think it's contributed to um, helping us start to take some action. And you do write about action in the book. So in addition to reassuring people that everything's going to be fine, because we do know what's actually going on, what initiatives are going on right now to prevent utter disaster as a fallout from an earthquake or another unexpected event? There really is a lot. So here in Southern California, which is where I've been working most closely, just before I left the USGS, I ended up spending a year uh, with the mayor of Los Angeles. I actually went to City Hall every day, and they came up with a plan for earthquake resilience and the cities acted on it. There have been a huge number of initiatives that have been undertaken, and we're seeing a lot of potential vulnerabilities being fixed. In the last few years, the other cities of Southern California, there's 192 cities in Southern California, have been watching this and seeing that Mayor Garcetti did not suffer politically for taking this on. In fact, he has become incredibly popular. Obviously, he's done plenty more than this, but it, it didn't hurt him. So we're now seeing other communities starting to take on much of the uh, some of these other activities. We have 40 different cities that are working with the nonprofit I started to better understand the risk and move towards seismic resilience. We're seeing state level initiatives to strengthen our building code going on. And on a broader picture around the world, just the whole idea of resilience has gone in the last decade from a topic nobody even understood what that meant to being taken on around the world. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation has funded something they call the 100 Resilient Cities, paying for a chief resilience officer in the mayor's office in 100 different cities. Uh, part of it, I think, is the difference of globalization and telecommunications. That might sound a little funny, but we have, because of the advent of rapid communications, now, when a disaster hits somewhere else in the world, we are able to experience it immediately. And, and, you know, when the tsunami went in in Japan in 2011, I sat in Southern California and watched in real time, you know, photographs from aerial photographs or video showing the wave moving in on the city. And it's much more real to us then. So we are starting to have a connection and empathy and it's helping us overcome our normalization bias because 
around the world, these disasters are much more common. And if we can experience them through telecommunications, we don't have to suffer so directly ourselves to have been empowered to act. How far has architecture and construction come? How much can we physically protect ourselves from these earthquakes? We could absolutely physically protect ourselves. We have not chosen to do so. Hmm. So the current building code says, as long as you can crawl out alive, that's a success. Oh, wow. We say that if you choose to build a building that's so weak that it's a total financial loss, that was your choice to make. The role of government is to make sure you don't kill somebody in the process. So what they sort of philosophically considered the minimum has practically become the maximum. Because if you build a building stronger than that, as a developer, you're not going to be able to sell it for more money and you aren't going to get your money back. So what we are seeing is we have a city full of buildings built to what we call a life safety standard. For 1% more in construction costs, we could be building it to a functional recovery standard, meaning we can return it to its full functioning within a, a short period of time after the disaster. And there are very few individuals that will choose to do it that way. For instance, Caltech being a place that uh, understands earthquake and builds to own its own buildings has always built them 50% stronger than the code required. And that would add about 1% to the cost of construction. Just 1%? Just 1%. I know. And so, and we know how to do it. Right? We're already building stronger buildings when you're near the fault and when you're farther away. So we know what it costs to do this. We just haven't chosen to, to do it for the rest of our buildings. And that's one of the things that I'm seeing changing at the state level. There is a bill up in front of the California state legislature to move us to functional recovery. Actually, I went to Sacramento and testified on it, sort of a new life post-government and it got passed through committee, so it's going through the process. And, you know, when you understand it's 1%, it's really hard to, to think about why we don't do it. Of course, we're mostly talking about industrialized nations here. It's worth stopping to think about countries that don't have those resources. I'm from Northern California, where earthquakes are pretty common. On January 9th, 2010, my hometown experienced a 6.5 magnitude earthquake. Three days later, Haiti experienced a magnitude 7 earthquake. I've since learned that the difference between a 6.5 and a 7 magnitude earthquake is actually pretty large. But even so, the difference in damage between the two quakes has stuck with me for years. In my hometown, there were power outages and damage to older buildings. The auditorium at my old high school was closed for a while. I remember seeing a picture in the paper of a grocery store aisle where all of the wine bottles had broken on the floor. But there were no deaths and minimal injuries. Compare that to Haiti where a quarter of a million people died during the quake and in the months after. It's pretty sobering to think about. The problem is that developing nations can only do so much with what they have. When you're trying to use limited resources to help the most people possible, building codes probably aren't top of mind, especially if your last big earthquake was 25 years ago, as it was in Haiti. But there are efforts to change this. Many countries rebuilding after devastating quakes have not only replaced dangerous structures, but have also done less expensive things like give their emergency response teams better training and develop countrywide disaster drills. Scientists are also working on devices that can be buried in the ground to absorb seismic waves, although they have a pretty steep price tag. It just isn't enough yet. As Australia's SBS show Dateline concludes, quote, disaster mitigation is still looked upon as a luxury good, 
an expectation in privileged countries and out of reach for many developing countries. What's the call to action for individuals? The government's doing a lot, but what's the biggest takeaway for what we as individuals can do about preparing for natural disasters? Yes, there's a role of government and there's a role of individuals. You know, you can get a lot of great information from FEMA and whatever. But in between those two are our communities and our community organizations. And my call to action is work with your community to make it safer. What I want individuals to do is to work with someone else. Go to some place where you connect with other people, your neighbors, your, your congregation, your school you know, family, whatever it is. Work with them to get ready. And then we'll, you'll, you'll have a better community along the way. There's anything that's done to make us better able to get through the earthquake is also something that's helping us on every day. But whatever it is, your community probably has a risk. Maybe it's not earthquakes, but just about every one of us is subject to significant natural disasters because the processes that lead to disasters are also the processes that make the earth a productive place. So volcanoes give us fertile soil. The faults will trap water and give us springs. Obviously, the rivers that flood also water our crops and provide transportation. So we are, all of our cities are preferentially built towards places with a high level of hazard. And we all have something. So the other thing I would tell people is the first thing you should do is figure out what your own hazard is. There are lots of great sources from NOAA for meteorologic disasters or the USGS for geologic disasters. Research what your problems are and what are the fixes because almost every one of them has a good fix out there too. And if you can figure that out, then you can be in a position to uh, make yourself safer and you're all going to be able to to cope and, and do a better job after the event. I want to wrap up with a final segment we do on our show called the Curiosity Challenge. I'm going to ask you a trivia question about something I learned about on Curiosity.com that I think you'll find interesting. All right. So I understand that classical music is a hobby of yours? Uh, yes, it is. All right. Great. So I have a music question for you. In 1980... Sony and Philips decided that a standard CD should hold exactly 74 minutes worth of audio. Now, part of the reason for this precise number is that several executives from both companies decided it was important that one specific piece of classical music could fit on one side. And 74 minutes was, at the time, the longest recording of that piece. Do you know what piece of classical music it was? That's fascinating. I have no idea, and I'd love to know. (laughs) <laughs> it is uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Oh, of course. Probably <laughs> the most popular piece of classical music out there. <laughs> I know, I should have given you a hint. No, I probably, uh, the, the, see, I love classical music, but once I discovered the 17th century, I didn't see any reason to dis- return to the 20th. And I, uh, I play all early music at this point. What do you play? I play something called the viola da gamba. It's a Renaissance predecessor of the cello. Oh, wow. Yeah. I do occasionally play 18th century music. I'm now in a Baroque orchestra, but 18th is as far up as I come. That's really cool. That's really cool. Do you have a random trivia that's anything at all? In the 18th century, the viola da gamba was the premier solo instrument. What happened? How did it disappear? Ooh, was it because it was too expensive? Wait, wait, hold on. Money is the root of everything. <laughs> so it has to have to do with money. So it must be that some big violin manufacturer or, or something made the violin just a lot cheaper and distributed it better? No, but it's money in a sense. The gamba was the aristocrat's instrument. 
So King Charles I was an accomplished player, kept composers in court. When the Cromwell's Revolution happened, they not only killed the king, they tried to, to destroy every gamba in England, and only about 100 survived. Mm. It continued on the continent, but Marie Antoinette played the gamba. And by the time the revolution happened in France, that was pretty much the end of the instrument. Compounded by one other factor is that it was quieter than the violin family. And so when we moved away from music being in the courts to being in symphony halls, it wasn't loud enough to keep up with the violins. That's an amazing trivia question. (laughs) And it's coming back now. The Viola da Gamba Society of America has over a thousand members, and there's quite a resurgence in the instrument because now we have amplifiers. We don't have to worry about what goes on in the concert hall in quite the same way. Dr. Lucy Jones, thank you so much for joining me on the Curiosity Podcast. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Get out your telescopes. It's time for the extra credit question. This week's question comes from Julian from Houston, who writes, I was curious... Yeah, you were, Julian. About how astrophysicists can predict the chemical composition of an exoplanet light years away. In other words, Julian wants to know how scientists know what distant stars and planets are made of. The answer, after this. Ashley, you've been working here longer than me. How did you hear about Curiosity.com? Strangely, it was through this really cool Chrome extension that we have. A Chrome extension? Yeah. I learned about this cool thing you could add to your Chrome browser that would tell you a fact every time you opened a new tab. And I had been using it for about six months when I applied for this job. That is crazy. And you can still get the Chrome extension? Yeah, I use it. Everyone in the office uses it. Do you use it, Cody? I just started using it as a matter of fact. And you too can get smarter each time you open a new tab with the Curiosity Smart Tab Chrome extension. Our expert editors and designers, which include me now, have created short, fun topics to learn each time you open a new tab in Google Chrome. Yeah, it is really cool. You just click on the topics you like best to dive deeper into that topic on Curiosity.com. With this extension, you just never stop learning. It's got 63 five-star reviews. Here's what people are saying. Ariel Sanchez wrote a review that just said, the best extension. Angeline Warnock said, this is my favorite extension ever. And ever's in all caps, so you know it's serious. Definitely. You can find it on the Chrome Web Store. Again, it's called Curiosity Smart Tab, or we'll have a link in the show notes. Never stop learning. I'm detecting the extra credit answer. Julian wanted to know how we can identify what stars and planets are made of from light years away. The answer is super cool. While we've determined the chemical composition of a lot of the planets in our solar system by sending spacecraft to probe the atmosphere and sometimes bring back a few samples, we obviously can't do that with objects light years away. Instead, we analyze their light. Every element on the periodic table gives off light in its own spectrum of colors. The colors emitted by hydrogen are different than those emitted by sulfur, for instance. Astronomers use a device called a spectrometer that can take that light and spread it out into its individual components, kind of like a prism takes white light and spreads it out into the colors of the rainbow. They'll take the light of a far-off object, whether that's a star, a planet, or even a cloud of dust, run it through a spectrometer to find out which colors are coming off of it, then match those colors to the elements that produce them. It's like every object has its own barcode, and we just need a spectrometer to read it. Thanks for your question. If you have a question about the universe or the world around you that's been nagging at you, send it in to podcast at curiosity.com and I might answer it on a future show. That's all for this week. Subscribe to this podcast and you can get smarter every day in just a few minutes on our new daily episodes. 
or join us next week for another deep dive into what we don't know. Because curiosity makes you smarter. Jeez, you really like that line, huh? It's a great line. Yeah, it is. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.